the totally unofficial Big Finish Review podcast. And welcome to the Big Finish review for February 2021. Uh, later on, I will be reviewing this month's batch of Doctor Who related audio releases. But first, here is a summary of the news that broke last month. One of the best pieces of news was the announcement that there will be more stories featuring Kate, Osgood and the gang from UNIT. We have not had any releases in the UNIT range since April 2019, uh, when we got the eighth boxed set in the series UNIT Incursions. Four further series of four episodes, all under the banner UNIT Nemesis, have been announced. Volume 1 is due to be released in November. By then, it will be two and a half years since we have seen these guys, so it will be great to get new episodes. Joining the cast, at least for the first series, is Christopher Naylor as Harry Sullivan, who makes his big de- big finish debut as Harry in next month's fourth Doctor Missing Adventures release, Return of the Cybermen. Curiously, in this, he's not playing a younger; he is playing a younger version of the character rather than the contemporary version. Even more curiously, he is joined by Eleanor Crooks as a character called Naomi Cross, who also appeared alongside Harry. Uh, sorry, who also appears alongside Harry in the thirteenth series of the Fourth Doctor uh, adventures, which are not due for release until twenty twenty four. I like the idea of a story told over sixteen episodes. It works very well for the Eighth Doctor range, and I'm sure it will only enhance the unit range too. And hints teased by producer David Richardson suggest that Harry Sullivan's appearance is part. Of of a much bigger story that plays out over the next few years. Unit Nemesis Volume 1 also sees, as you can tell from the cover artwork, the return of the Ice Warriors, so there is a lot to look forward to in this release. April's Torchwood monthly release has been announced. It is Gooseberry, starring Bern Gorman as Owen Harper and Tom Price as Andy Davidson. This is a very good pairing and is the fourth release over um, the years featuring these two characters, and all of them set in the period in which Owen was not technically alive during season two, but before he actually died, if that makes sense. Cover art and details, story details for April's release, The Lone Centurion, have been made available. Terry Malloy, best known as Davros and Mike Tucker to Archers fans, is playing an as yet unnamed character. All stories are set in ancient Rome, which is fine, but this new series, starring Arthur Darville as the 11th Doctor's companion Rory Williams, has the potential to be set at any time from the Roman era to 2011. If I'm honest, I'd assume it would be an anthology of stories set at random points in history. It still may be. A second series has been scheduled for July next year, although no stories details have been released uh, about that one yet. In September, Big Finish will be releasing an adaptation of The Box of Delights. I already own two versions of this story. The three-hour Radio 4 adaptation made in 1995, which is okay, and the wonderful BBC TV version from 1984, starring Patrick Troughton as Cole Hawlings and with numerous other Doctor Who links, both in the cast and behind the scenes. It's amazing. Did you get that impression? Uh, This new version seems to be a six CD set, so it's either five episodes in a behind-the-scenes disc or six episodes Again, the details haven't come out yet. The casting coup is that it stars Derek Jacobi as Cole Hawlings. So I was sold immediately. I know it's not a Doctor Who release, but I could not resist uh, pre-ordering the CD version, which is limited to a thousand pressings. Two new releases were also announced in the Doctor Who The Early Years range. Initially, this range featured four releases every year, at least until the final year, pardon me, and ran for six years. It ended with The Amazing Daughter of the Gods, which was released in 2019 and was supposed to be the final story. However, announced for release in August are the following two stories. After the Daleks stars Carol Ann Ford as Susan and tells the story of what happened to the Doctor's granddaughter in the wake of the Dalek invasion uh, and her decision to stay behind on Earth. The second story stars Peter Purvis as Stephen Taylor and also the first Doctor and introduces Lauren Cornelius as Dodo Chaplet, or Chaplet, sorry, a character we've only seen in Big Finish narrated by other people um, as part of the Companion Chronicles range. 
That story is called The Secrets of Det Sen. Again, fans will recognise Det Sen as the Himalayan monastery that the Second Doctor uh, returned a holy relic to at the start of the 1967 story The Abominable Snowmen. Perhaps we will now find, find out exactly how he obtained it. Two big Finnish productions have been nominated for Audi Awards. The Audis is an awards programme in the United States recognising distinction in audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. The Eighth Doctor box set Stranded Volume 1 and the Big Finish original series Attergirl Series 2 have both been nominated. Stranded is absolutely terrific and I'm thrilled that it's been uh, recognised and I'm pretty sure Attergirl is great as well. I, I have bought it but I haven't had the opportunity to listen to it yet but I have read, read some amazing reviews. The award winners will be announced on an online ceremony on the 22nd of March this year. Right, now it's time for my first review of this month. Here is the trailer for Gallifrey Time War, Volume 4. Hear your Lord President, your father, as you make this great sacrifice. From Big Finish Productions, Gallifrey Time War, Volume 4. When two mighty armies bend the constellations to become their battlefields, a warrior must decide. We tried to turn back the tide, but failed. Our friends have been taken, one by one. So what is left for us to do? Run? Hide? It does not sit well with a warrior to run. But sometimes it is the only choice. Or we can... Resist. But what of the lost, those who fall in battle? Are they condemned to rise time and time again, to take arms against an enemy who never rests? History is written by the winners. In a time war, that history can be rewritten by the losers. No one's truly gone until they're gone from memory. Farewell, my friends. Big Finish. We love stories. Now, as a series, uh, Gallifrey has a heritage second to none. It started in March 2004 in a series starring Lala Ward as Romana, Louise Jameson as Leela and John Leeson as K-9. Now, these were the days before Tom Baker had, had agreed to record stuff for Big Finish. So this was probably at least partly conceived as a way of doing something with his series regulars in his absence. At this point, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Slayton was already recording stuff uh, in her own series as Sarah Jane Smith. And Gallifrey hit the ground running. Episode one introduced us to Sean Carl Carlson as CIA coordinator Narvin, a series regular who's still with us now, as well as the enigmatic Cardinal Braxiatel, played wonderfully by Miles Richardson. Braxiatel was already a lead character in the Bernie Summerfield range, so his inclusion here was intriguing. We already knew he was a Time Lord, but we didn't know that he was such a high-ranking one. Linda Bellingham also reprised her role as the, in, as the Inquisitor here from Trial of a Time Lord. The series initially ran for three highly entertaining series before seeming to end in 2006. Russell T Davies' new version of Doctor Who was on our screens by then, and the final episode of Gallifrey hinted that a war was coming and that they needed to prepare. That seemed to be it, but the show returned five years later in 2011 and ran for another five series before announcing that it was going to join the Time War in a four-series, 16-episode story arc starting in 2018. Now, at this point, Big Finish had already created much Time War content with a War Master range starring Derek Jacobi and an eighth Doctor Time War series starring Paul McGann, as well as having completed a 12 episode series starring John Hurt as the War Master. I'm sure they would have done more, but obviously uh, John Hurt sadly passed. Would Gallifrey have anything new to offer this giant story. The first three series that started back in 2004 told a coherent story and, and the five after that never really achieved the golden heights of those first three whose strength was an ongoing story uh, and a believable political situation. Would joining the Time War and once again telling a larger story over many episodes restore the series to its former glory? 
Well, the short answer is yes. Over the course of the Time War series, which I listened to again in full before listening to these final episodes, the war has started. Romana has tried and failed to become president again, and Rassilon has been brought back from the dead to lead them, which ties in with the end of time in the television series. Romana sought help from the War Master, which resulted in the apparent death of Leela. Braxiatel fled for his own reasons, taking Ace with him. Rassilon started investigating, sorry, started in instigating atrocities, wiping out innocent planets and people in order for the Time Lords to win the war. The people that put him there started to regret it, but it was too late. From being a neutral observer, Gallifrey has become the aggressor. Romana and Narvin were exiled, and during their exile managed to locate Leela, but in doing so drew the Daleks to a world rich in fuel for their ships. Rather than telling the Time Lords, knowing that Rasslon would destroy the world in its past, rather than engaging the Daleks head-on, thus wiping out another innocent species, Romana ordered Leela and Narvin to flee, intending to set up a resistance to fight the Daleks, but she was apparently killed before she could even start. And that's where Series 4 picks up. Leela, Narvin and a survivor from the planet Unity, Rayo, fleeing in the unreliable TARDIS they stole. These final four episodes absolutely deliver. They tie up the stories for all of the main characters, some of which we've been following since the first series of Gallifrey back in 2004. It also has the job of taking Gallifrey from being the place that we know and understand from the earlier episodes of, the, of this series, and indeed the world created and established in classic television episodes like The Deadly Assassin, Ark of Infinity and The Five Doctors, and, leading, and leaving it as a world run mercilessly and with no opposition by Rassilon that we see in the new series episode The End of Time. This can only happen if the influence, and in some cases the lives, of our favourite characters are brought to an end. In the first episode, Deception, by Lisa McMullen, the survivors of the previous episode, Leela, Narvin and the new character Rayo, arrive on a world where, all resist where a resistance to war has been set up. Uh, their leader is an, an ex-Celestial Intervention Agency member, Eris, who left uh, Gallifrey a couple of series ago not liking the way Rassilon was doing things. The Resistance is not there to fight the Daleks or the Time Lords. Their intention is to end the Time War, and they have a very simple plan for a way to do it. We also discovered that this group have sympathisers on Gallifrey itself, and the main focus of this episode is Leela and Eris attempting to recover two agents who are still working on Gallifrey when the TARDIS gets trapped in a deception field, uh, which is a part of the vortex that has been deliberately warped to stop people who are trapped within it from getting out. We also have some scenes on Gallifrey for the first time since the second set of episodes. We know that Rassilon regenerated at the end of that second series, but we've not heard him since. Well, he's back in this episode, played wonderfully by Richard Armitage, who most genre fans will recognise as Thorin Oakenshield from Peter Jackson's The Hobbit trilogy. He is ably assisted by his Prime Minister Livia, a former president, and also the head of the War Council, Mantis, both of whom have been absent since series two. This episode serves to introduce the Resistance, reacquaint us with several familiar characters, and tell us what Eris and his Resistance are planning. They intend to literally poison the Time Vortex, send matter through it via the untempered schism on Gallifrey, which will subsequently make entry into the Vortex impossible, thus preventing both Daleks and the Time Lords from being able to travel in time. No time travel, no time war. It's as simple as that. Episode 2, which is called Dissolution and is written by Lou Morgan, tells the story of what Narvin and Rayo are doing whilst Leela and Eris are trying to rescue their double agents from the deception field. Narvin visits a world that contains a retreat for his Time Lord chapter, run by his old mentor known only as the Apothecary, played by Anna Carter, who I remember as Inspector Kate Longton from the 1980s television series Juliet Bravo. Narvin is there for advice, but is unaware that a lone Dalek has been tracking him through time, and it catches up with him on this world. It's a nice character piece, and once the drama is over, uh, Rayo stays on the world with the, with the Apocryphy, which is frankly for the best. Omar Austin plays the character ve very well indeed, but in the three episodes that he's appeared in, it's only really here where he has much to do. Given that he's neither a Time Lord or a soldier, there is little he could really contribute to the series. I understand that he had to leave with Narvin and Leela at the end of the last series, but we did not really need to see him again. A passing reference at the start of episode one of that series, um, of this series, sorry, that the resistance of looking after him would have been a quite sufficient way to write him out, although I'm sure the actor was very pleased. They didn't handle it this way. 
There is a surprising moment at the end of episode three. Once Narvin has said goodbye to Rayo and the Apothecary, the nar- narrative suddenly shifts to the moment of Romana- Romana's apparent murder by the Daleks at the end of the last series. Braxitel pops up, we haven't seen him since the first series, and rescues her just in the nick of time. It is interesting that one of the reasons that they ended on that cliffhanger was that actress Lala Ward was leaving the country to live abroad, and at that time they did not know if she would be available for the final series. I'm really glad that she was. A series of Gallifrey without Romana would be unthinkable. The third story, Mother Tongue by Helen Goldwyn, focuses on Brax and Romana. Braxitel believes that he has also found a way to end the war, or rather prevent it from ever having happened. There is a region in the space-time vortex called the Beyond, where all of all the eh, where all of the redundant timelines created by the Time War exist, after a fashion, and is discovered that somewhere in the Beyond is a weapon that can be used to wipe out a single race from the universe, and he intends to use it to remove the Daleks. Romana is not so keen because one of the side effects of removing them will also remove any planet that they have attacked from ever having existed as well, and this includes the Earth. But she joins Braxitel in his quest through the beyond anyway, encountering some timelines where she has been forced to do some horrendous things herself. They also encounter the Ravenous, a race that feeds on Time Lords that first featured in a series with the Eighth Doctor, and eventually they find the so-called weapon only to discover that it is only a portal into a redundant timeline where the Daleks never existed. Braxitel sacrifices himself to the Ravenous in order to save Romana, but at the end she decides to return to the real universe rather than live in peace in a redundant timeline. On the way out of the beyond, she is captured by a Dalek fleet that are about to start what they intend to be the final assault on Gallifrey. The scene is set for the final showdown. Leela and Narvin are on a mission on behalf of the Resistance to poison the Vortex and stop the war. On Gallifrey, Mantis and Livia are getting nervous about Rassilon and his intentions, and Romana is a prisoner on board a massive Dalek fleet intent on destroying Gallifrey. I won't, I won't talk too much about the final episode, Unity, by David Wellin, just to say that it is suitably epic. At first, I assumed that the final insult, assault on Gallifrey just mentioned was the one featured in the 50th anniversary television episode, The Day of the Doctor, but it's not a spoiler to say that it was not. What I will say is that all of the characters that we have been following uh, would continue to resist what Rassilon is doing if they were able to do so. We also know that Gallifrey continues its slides towards being as bad as the Daleks, as demonstrated in The End of Time. So eventually, when you are listening to this, you come to the realisation that this is not about the end of Gallifrey, merely about the end of Gallifrey as we know it. All of the people that we know and love either cannot be there and have any influence at the end of this tale. Every character has their exit. Some die. Some capitulate to the new order. It ends with Rasslon in total control. Had a thought about it beforehand, this is the only way it could have ended. It's a great and harrowing story. We have followed these characters for 50 episodes now, and it's quite devastating to know that things will never be the same again. In fact, the first hint of all of this was uh, in the sixth Doctor story released in 2001 called The Apocalypse Element, which featured both Gallifrey and Daleks and Romana. Russell T. Davis has since, in an interview, described the events in that story as the opening salvo of the Time War. So it's a saga that has been with us for 20 years. The current production team of this, which is mainly Scott Hancock as producer and Matt Fitness script editor, have been with Gallifrey for 10 years now, since the fourth series, this is technically the 12th, um, and they have said this is the end of Gallifrey in this iteration, although they were careful enough not to make the ending so bleak that the threads cannot be picked up again, albeit by someone else. Personally, I hope they do. Picking up the series in a post-Time War Gallifrey is a story I would like to hear, and one that the survivors of this story could be a part of. In a recent podcast, Nick Briggs has confirmed that Gallifrey will, at some point, return. The extras at the end of this disc did clarify one thing for me. There are so many Time War ranges from Big Finish now, it's hard to work out how they all fit together, and Scott Hancock did explain this. The Warmaster series is set before or concurrently with the, two, with the first two series of Gallifrey Time War, which makes sense as Narvin appears in uh, the Warmaster from time to time. The Eighth Doctor Time War series is set somewhat concurrently with this, as Livia does appear in an episode, and the War Doctor series is much later in the war, which makes sense. We have more War Doctor material coming this year in a series called The War Doctor Begins, uh, which starts immediately after the regeneration on Khan that created him, seen in the anniversary TV short episode The Night of the Doctor with Paul McGann. 
So although Narvin, Romana, Braxiatel, Ace and Livia will not be fighting in that war, characters like Alistra and Rasmus will appear to fight again. Gallifrey's 17-year story arc has been some of Big Finish's Big Finish's finest storytelling. It is up there with Jago and Lightfoot as some of the best works set in the Doctor Who universe, but not regularly featuring the Doctor. This feels like the end of an era, but I would genuinely like to thank everyone involved. Go and buy Gallifrey Time War, not just volume four, buy the bloody lot. Uh, if you buy a bundle of all four series, it costs you £80 for downloads or £90 on CD, and it is honestly worth every single penny. Now it's time to look at another range that is almost finished. It's this month's entry into the monthly range. Um, it's this month's entry into the monthly range, and there's the last but one in that range as well. So here is the trailer for The Blazing Hour. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Blazing Hour. Well... It's 10.25. Let's get this experiment underway. This planet is called Testament, the powerhouse of the human empire. You indigenous are always frightened of risk. But if you don't take the risks, you won't get the rewards. Safety is our top priority. He's frozen in the wall. That's a living person. I have to tell you, because I'm frightened. I think this energy boost is going to cause the most appalling explosion anyone has ever seen. But if anything went wrong with the technology... I really think we've had enough of your negative attitude. Don't be too hard on him. He's from off-world. I mean, look around. Does this seem to you like a safe form of technology? Testament is a completely safe source of energy. I won't be listening to any more of your opinions. You're a saboteur. All you deserve is summary execution. What we do here isn't about heat or fission. It involves the manipulation of time. Bending time. That's the secret of testament technology, like the Leveson jar. What do you know about time? Time was supposed to make me rich. The effect will tear the time stream of the atom apart. You won't be able to control it. You'll get an infinite replication. That atom repeated in every moment of its history. This will mean the end for everyone. You're running light bulbs off the forces of the space-time continuum. You're sailing into a storm and your boat isn't built strongly enough to stand it. The roof ripped open and the sky full of fire. Testament consumed in a blazing hour. Get it under control, Mrs. Ellison. I can't! The explosion is coming now, and nothing can stop it. Big finish. We love stories. No! Go away! Get away from me! Doctor! The Blazing Hour is release number 274 in what has become known as the main or monthly Doctor Who range. It is written by James Kettle, stars Peter Davison as Doctor Number 5 and Mark Strickson as Turlow. It's the last but one release in this range that has been running for 22 years and there's a kind of symmetry that I've spotted here which I'm sure is unintentional but I like it nonetheless. The range started in 1999 with a multi-doctor story called The Sirens of Time and ends next month with a multi-doctor story uh, called The End of the Beginning. The first released after Sirens of Time was also a fifth Doctor and Turlo story and it's an uncommon pairing. Mark Strickson has been in plenty of stories but usually with Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton as Nissa and Tegan. There are only a handful with him, uh, just him and the Doctor. Anyway, I digress. The Blazing Hour is a story of greed, and there is also a hint of Chernobyl in there as well. Uh, the Doctor and Turlo arrive on the planet Testament, which is the power source used in the far future by much of the human race. The way the power is generated is something that, as a long-term Doctor Who fan, I particularly enjoyed. Years ago, as far back as the Pertwee era, the Doctor described something called the Blinovich Limitation Effect, which was the reason that the same person cannot constantly return to the same point in time to, for example, put something right they originally did wrong. In 1983, the 20th anniversary year, we find out how it actually works, when the Brigadier from 1977 accidentally meets the Brigadier from 1983. There is a massive release of energy knocking out both versions and having a lasting effect on the memory of the 1977 version of the Brigadier. 
In this story, scientists are bringing together two versions of the same atom from different points in time and using the subsequent energy release as a power source. It's such a neat idea, I'm surprised that no one has come up with it before, and is described by the Doctor at one point as running light bulbs of the fo- off the forces of the space-time continuum. Then human greed uh, rears its ugly head. The planet Thorn is now the centre of the human empire. The Doctor informs us that there is rather too much argon in the Earth's atmosphere to sustain life, and the economy is in what is known as slow growth. The Prime Minister has tasked a deputy, one Violet Hardacre, with sorting that out. Violet's solution is to put pressure on the administrator of the power plant, situated on the planet Testament, uh, who is run, um, sorry, who is a weak man called Horobin. He does not understand the science behind what he's being asked to do and pushes the scientists to run tests to exponentially increase the power output of Testament. The results are a mixed bag. They usually end with a simulated disaster, but when one single test doesn't, he decides under pressure from Violet to go ahead and do it for real. Unsurprisingly, things go wrong, a large part of the power complex is destroyed, and the only thing that prevents the disaster is Ellison, one of his scientists, installing a time dam that slows down the reaction that is definitely going to destroy the whole planet and runs a strong chance of cascading out of control and taking out a large portion of the galaxy. Once again, there is a small cast, and once again, it doesn't matter. I was somewhat critical of cast members playing multiple characters in one of last month's releases, and they did the same here, but this time it works. In fact, outside the regular cast, the only person with one role is Reiki Aeola, who who plays uh, politician Violet Hardacre, and she does it really well. Violet is cynical, pushy, and only really interested in her own agenda, which is to kickstart the economy as she has been instructed to do. She's one Wonderfully patronising. I enjoyed the way she spoke to various characters. Uh, Reiki's performance is cracking. The rest of the cast all play at least two characters, but they don't appear in scenes together. And I only knew they were the same character because I had the cast list in front of me when I was listening to it. I often do this because without visual cues, it helps me to remember who is who in the early stages of the play. Peter Davison is great here too. And he does have a rough time of it. At one point, Violet informs the Doctor that Turlow died in the initial explosion. Obviously, he did not, but it suits her for him to believe that he did. And his response is wonderfully emotional. Not over the top, but clearly referencing what has presumably relative recently in his personal timeline happened to Adric. Uh, Then there is the commentary on colonialism. Uh, The people on the planet Testament are presumably humanoid in appearance, but they are not actually descended from the planet Earth, and there are some rather unpleasant comments uh, about their worth. Many of the human characters refer to them as natives, which feels like it's only a short step from primitives, which they absolutely are not. The lead scientist, Kathy Ellison, is a native. Now, I did initially question why the natives have all got human-sounding names, But then that happens a lot when a culture is overtaken and their culture is quashed. So what I initially thought was poor continuity is actually, in hindsight, a much more powerful statement. There is also a subversive use of a MacGuffin in here. For those of you who who kind of know the phrase but aren't exactly sure what it means, an online dictionary describes it as an object or device in a film or book, presumably audio play as well, which serves merely as a trigger to the plot. Prisoners, usually natives, are placed in a device called a Leveson jar, which freezes them in time, allowing them to be displayed as an example to the others. It is a veiled execution, though, because it's impossible to remove someone from a Leveson jar without killing them. As an aside, I love the name chosen for the jar, uh, and I'm sure that it's no coincidence. In 2011 and 2012, after the News International phone hacking scandal, an inquiry into culture, practices and ethics of the press was conducted by Lord Justice Leveson. It's another clever detail in a wonderfully clever script. Back to the story, Turlow theorises that the explosion can be contained in one of these Leveson jars, but of course things are not, in this case, as simple as that. And do you have a tiny criticism of the story? In episode three, the Doctor takes Violet back to the planet Thorn to try and arrange for the situation to be managed properly. If the explosion cannot be contained, it will be catastrophic for the wider galaxy, not to mention every native of the planet being killed. The Prime Minister willfully misunderstands what he is saying, accusing him of being negative, and then later proudly announces that they're going to take definitive action. They are going to have an inquiry. It's a predictable moment and is there presumably to fill the inevitable episode 3 void, but it's also slightly irritating. 
The theme of the economy being the deciding factor for most of the decisions is much, much stronger. The fact that even the Prime Minister of Thorne thinks it's okay to let the entire population of Testament die because of the cost of evacuating them is pretty chilling. Um, when they do finally capitulate the doctor's demands, as he's agreed to sort out the cascade reaction, if they save the people, he's right to be cynical about whether they're lying or not just to help him. Or just to get him to help, sorry. The Blazing Hour is a great late addition to the monthly range. Once again recorded remotely, Mark Strickson was in New Zealand, and other cast members recorded in places as diverse as Greece and Twickenham. Uh, the finished product is as polished and enjoyable as we have come to expect from Big Finish. It is available from bigfinish.com as either a CD or download, uh, and as a single release or part of a bundle. I heartily recommend it. Now, it's time to revisit... Tea Time in 1977 with The Fourth Doctor Adventures, Series 10, Volume 2. From Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Fourth Doctor Adventures, Series 10, Volume 2. Welcome aboard Thaddeus Nook's Time Tours! Whoa! Oh, what was that? Another TARDIS? Another time machine that almost hit us. Who are you? I could ask you the same question. Mr Nook, is that you? This is Normandy in the 1940s. The world is at war. France is occupied by Nazi Germany. Oh, hello. How excitingly, period. I'm going to ask some questions. If you fail to answer, the next to speak with you will be the Gestapo. This is not good. If he tells the Nazis about D-Day, it'll be disastrous for Earth's history. Who's that? That's the crowds lining the streets. <laughs> He's coming. Who is coming? Oh, I. These readings indicate massive fractures in the timelines. The time has unraveled and established history is no more. What is this? An act of violence on Triumph Day. Violence? I barely touched you. You're going nowhere. Something on this time tour is going to cause time to be irrevocably fractured. Oh. Causally linked to Thaddeus Nook's wretched time machine. Oh, Spock. Oh, well done, Thaddeus, me old fella. It sounds like this time machine is dangerous. It is in the hands of an amateur like Nook. Ah! Ah! Thaddeus! Your board! Your ship is breaking up! It will last long enough to get us where we're going! 1830, Lyme Regis. Still on the Jurassic coastline. Why, Miss Mary Anning, I'm delighted to meet you. How do you do, sir? You're a doctor, you say? Yes, that's right. Well, I suppose you are a member of the London Society of Physicians. Oh, yes, in a manner of speaking. I am sorry for your loss. Tis not my loss. Old Lawrence passed on last night in unusual circumstances. Please, no! No! the locals like to talk of a beast some sort of mythical creature the usual nonsense we'll be careful won't you mark and silas are still missing since the last smuggle once they've got the merchandise they'll pay handsomely oh careful there miss anning what's the rush mr jones we must gather up the townsfolks fast as we can the beast that killed old lawrence is coming this way and bringing many others with it the beast the the head. I have to find it. I know she has it. Head into the caves! And if we can't find me way! Just sit tight! But watch out for the bees! <sighs> There's nothing in there. It's just an old boy's cell. <sighs> Big finish. We love stories. This was a mistake. I should have stayed with Lizzie. This set features two four-part stories, which seems to have become the new standard format for this range. Previously, the fourth Doctor Adventures was eight discs per year, and usually each disc contained a two-part story, with the occasional story rolled over two discs. They retained this format for when they replaced the eight individual discs with uh, two lots of four-disc box sets. Same amount of content, but delivered twice a year instead of eight. 
Last year, the format switched to what we have now, which is each set containing two four-part stories. Now, I personally prefer this format. There was nothing wrong with the two-part stories, but the four-parters are more traditional for Tom's Doctor, and you do get to know the characters better. However, one of the potential drawbacks of a four-part story is that in some cases, episode three is just a large 25-minute delaying tactic, keeping the end of the story at a distance. Thankfully, uh, the first story in this set, The Tribulations of Thaddeus Nook by Andrew Smith, avoid that thanks to its format, which is essentially a, a pursuit through time and space, rather like the 1965 William Hartnell serial The Chase, although at this time it's the Doctor doing the pursuing rather than the Daleks. He is chasing a time traveller called Thaddeus Nook, who um, is in a type of time machine that has been banned by the Time Lords. Thanks to the events in episode one, Leela is with him and the Doctor needs to rescue her. Now, the first thing to note is that the protagonist, Thaddeus Nook, is not really a bad guy. He's more of an opportunist. Think Del Trotter finds a time machine and you're pretty much there. Nook is a schemer and it's mostly get-rich-quick ideas, so when he comes across a time machine and discovers that it actually works, he sets up Thaddeus Nook's time tours and takes paying guests on trips into history and even allows them to request destinations. The opening scenes are actually quite funny. The Doctor picks up another time machine from inside the TARDIS and follows it to where it lands, which is France, just a few days before D-Day. He wants to make sure the other time traveller does not interfere with the course of history, this being a pivotal moment, so him and Lee leave the TARDIS to find the occupant. It does not take them long. They soon see a man dressed in incongruous clothing, setting himself up a picnic on one of the landing beaches. And before the Doctor can ask him what the hell he's playing at, he is arrested by some German soldiers and interrogated. There is some great humour here. The man thinks it's all terribly interesting and tells the Germans he's not by himself, but he can't tell them who he is or why he's here because it's a secret. The listener knows how much trouble he will will be in and quickly, and you do cringe because you know the, the Gestapo are very likely to try and get the truth from him painfully and soon. The Doctor and Lee rescue the man, whose name is Krillian, who is played by Christopher Naylor, who turns up next month, as already mentioned, as Harry Sullivan. Uh, The Doctor takes him back to the time vessel where the owner, Thaddeus Nook, and his girlfriend Jess welcome him back and tell him off for wandering off. There are 14 other time tourists on board, but before the Doctor can read him the riot act, Nook takes off. The Doctor and Leela follow him to a planet in the 28th century to find out what is going on and stop him. However, Leela ends up on board when the next tour leaves. The tone of the story is fun until the end of episode two, where it changes dramatically. In fact, this whole story is quite unusual. In my mind, there are two types of big finished Doctor Who audios or audios in general. Those that are simple to follow so you can be doing other things as you listen to them and those that require closer attention. When the tone switched, so did the level of attention necessary to follow the story. Things get a lot more serious when it turns out one of the time tourists is actually a fanatic of the cult of Drek, and the time she is requested to visit on her time tour is the infamous infamous Triumph Day Massacre where Drek was killed. She changes events so that he does not die, and then the story becomes a desperate race against the clock to restore the correct timeline. Uh, Writer Andrew Smith first cut his teeth as a writer for uh, Doctor Who on TV in 1980 with a wonderful story called Full Circle. He was by far the youngest writer for Doctor Who at the time, at age 16. He now writes a lot for Big Finish and has contributed a lot to lots of ranges, including those outside the Doctor Who world, such as Star Cops, the upcoming first series of Space 1999, Survivors, Blake 7, and last year's Time Slip launch story, The Age of the Death Lottery, which was terrific. His Doctor Who credits are also rather cool. He has written for seven different Doctors and I always look forward to his stories. He has also written for the upcoming David Tennant 10th Doctor series Dalek Universe coming out later this year. The chase format avoids the potential pitfalls of the four-part format. Nook is a lovable rogue and as the final two episodes ramp up the tension and become rather doom-laden, when his business partner and girlfriend admits that she loves him, you kind of expect the worst. There are some unexpected nasty moments. The fate of the time tourists at the start of episode three is callous and shocking. The future of time is at stake and the universe in which Drek survives may not be worth living in. I do have a couple of negative points. I think I would have been able to take Drek far more seriously if it had not been for the silly effect on his voice, which makes him seem cartoonish and one-dimensional. But that's really my own criticism of a fun well-cast and sometimes dark tale. Story two in the set is The Primeval Design by Helen Goldwyn. Now, I was lucky enough to meet Helen 
more than 10 years ago at the recording of the main range story, The Wishing Beast, and was struck by what a genuinely nice and welcoming person she was and also how talented. If you follow her on YouTube, you will see she writes and performs songs. She also acts and directs a lot for Big Finish. I don't honestly know how often she writes for them. When you search for her name on the Big Finish website, you get every release she's either written, directed, or acted in, and over the years there have been absolutely loads. And the only way of determining what her role in each production was is to open up the details for each one and look. Um, I know she wrote a story for the sixth series of the Big Finish continuation of The Tomorrow People that never got made, thanks to the rights being unexpectedly withdrawn. She also played a main character in that show. She also wrote for the final series of Gallifrey that I mentioned earlier. One of the things I like most about the release is that it feels like one of the old style historical stories, such as they used to do in the first four series of the classic television show. Okay, it isn't a purely historical story, thanks to a load of monsters made from bones stomping around and threatening to wipe out the human race. But because they get almost no dialogue, apart from a few utterances from their queen once she's constructed, almost everyone who speaks in the story is from the era it's set in, which is Lyme Regis in Dorset in the 1830s. The story is centred around a person who actually existed, paleontologist Mary Anning, who struggled to get recognition uh, of her achievements simply thanks to the fact she was a woman, which is addressed in this tale. There are some wonderful moments between her and Leela, as she initially chides Leela for not conforming to what is expected of her in this century, but quickly warms to her unconventional approach. The general lack of respect for Mary is represented in this story by a scientist called Dr Newman, who has spent the last little while stealing many of her finds and putting her down, referring to her as a shopkeeper. Lucy Briggs-Owen, who is a big Finnish regular, uh, plays Mary Anning, and another cast member of note, not that he lasts all that long, is Alan David as Lord McAvoy, who's the guy who funds Dr Newman's research. Alan David played Gabriel Sneed in uh, the Christopher Eccleston um, episode uh, The Unquiet Dead in 2005 and will also be recognised to many as a regular on the Only Fools and Horses uh, spin-off The Green Green Grass. He also briefly plays another character in the opening scene who dies in the same way as his main one. There is a lot going on in this story. The basic premise is that many thousands of years ago an ancient alien race decided they wanted the earth for themselves and constructed a weapon to kill all animal life. The weapon mimics local life, in this case dinosaurs, and creates larger and more deadly versions of native species in order to wipe them out. Both the dinosaurs and the weapons were buried in the extinction event that wiped out the dinosaurs, and Dr Newman has been putting them back together from their remains. When the skeletons are completed, they come to life and are rather deadly. At least one escapes from captivity. Newman finally builds their queen, uh, the biggest and deadliest of the bone creatures, who is capable of leading the others. The monsters then decide to complete their original mission and wipe out all life on Earth. It feels large scale and there is a lot going on. As well as animals escaping from Lord McAvoy's reptile collection, we have smugglers, we have a woman giving birth, and we've got, run we've got people running around in caves and tunnels. The characters are all good fun and Tom and Louise do their usual, wonder usual wonderful job. The end is satisfying, but does leave you asking one question. Who sent the weapons to Earth in the first place? The second part of the fourth Doctor Series 10 is perhaps a little more satisfying than last month's first volume, but there isn't much in it. However, we would normally have to wait almost a year until we heard from the fourth Doctor again, but next month sees a further two four-part stories being released as part of the Missing Adventures range, one featuring Sarah and Harry, and the other Romana, and Romana 2 and K9. I can't wait. The final release of February that I'm going to take a look at is this month's Torchwood monthly release, Torchwood Drive. I'm going to need your help tonight, if that's okay. Depends what sort of help you need. I, I just need you to drive. Bloody hell! What happened? I said drive! From Big Finish Productions, Torchwood Drive. Our target's on the move. Our target? <laughs> Listen, I'm just a driver. It'll be pretty bad. It could take out half the city centre. I've got my husband at home eating a curry. I've got my daughter going on about her boyfriend troubles. I'm going to be a grandmother in three weeks. i got a life. Why should I help you? We got company. Who? Two cars. Load of men got out. Some of them had guns. Oh, God. Take my hand. What? No. They will kill us. Take my hand. So what do we do? I hope you've got your seatbelt on. <laughs> Big finish. We love stories.
He's moving again. It's really struggling to pin him down. Chicken village? Okay. And while you're there, get me some chicken dippers. So, this month's Torchwood offering is Torchwood Drive by David Llewellyn. It's an uncomplicated piece uh, that uses the Tom Cruise movie Collateral as inspiration and starting point. But in this version, it's a member of the Torchwood team that spends the night uh, being driven around Cardiff by a cab driver. The play is not quite a two-hander. There are a handful of other characters But at heart, this story is about the relationship between Toshiko Sato, played as ever by the wonderful Nyoko Mori, and her cabbie Forzia, played by Welsh actor Suzanne Packer, who is probably best known to most people for her regular roles on Brookside and then Casualty. Although Doctor Who fans will know her from the 2018 episode The Tsunara Conundrum, in which she played General Cicero. The story starts with an injured Tosh getting into the cab and telling Forzia to drive. She's been attacked and is obviously unwell, so Forzia takes her to the hospital to be checked out. Unbeknownst to Tosh, Tosh, she has left a tracking device vital to her current investigation in Forzia's cab. And the next person who gets in, a gentleman has just dropped a friend off at the accident and emergency department and is now rejoining his party at the nightclub, finds it and steals it. Tosh calls Forzia and asks her to pick her up from the hospital once she's been checked out and tells her of a loss. Forzia knows exactly where she dropped the guy off and what he looks like and when they arrive he has obviously been playing with the device because he is unconscious and being loaded into an ambulance thanks to a security setting on the gizmo. Tosh retrieves it and then the hunt begins. It turns out that Tosh is on the trail of someone who has stolen a short-range matter transmitter and is beaming himself around Cardiff, stealing from various businesses. The problem is that the transmat was not designed for human beings to use. He'll be okay if he uses it once or twice, but more than that, and he may cause his molecules to destabilise, which, in the worst-case scenario, could result in a large explosion. The story is essentially a chase around Cardiff as Tosh and Forzia try to catch the guy. Thanks to her knowledge of the city, Forzia is able to do much more than just drive Tosh around. She notices a pattern in the burglaries and is able to give good advice to Tosh based on her understanding of the layout of the city. Forzia is a great character too. She's in her 50s and facing the prospect of unemployment soon because macular degeneration means that she won't be able to drive. The actor who plays her makes her genuinely likeable. The writer was keen not to have the cab driver in the story being just the stereotypical slightly racist white bloke and it works wonderfully. Forzia ends up breaking lots of rules. I especially like the moment when she drives across a pedestrian square because she knows it is the quickest way to get to where they need to be much to Tosh's surprise and concern. There are two other people in the cast, Robert Wilfort, who plays the transmatting burglar called Chris, and Taylor J. Davis, who plays the partygoer who originally steals Tosh's gizmo, and practically every other male walk-on part in this piece. The motive for the thefts is believable. Chris does not appear in all that many scenes, but he's not just the baddie of the month, and you do sympathise with him to a degree. He's not an honest man. He's a thief that does the dirty work on behalf of others so that their businesses and themselves look respectable, at least from the outside, and is fed up of being used and wants to get his own back. All of the people he steals from are thieves themselves. This is an unusual Torchwood story for one main reason. It actually has a happy ending. I won't reveal what it is, but when it comes to the end, and Tosh would usually retcon the, mem- retcon the memories of the night away from everyone involved, she decides not to because these people are actually better off remembering what happened. It's well written. It has another bloody Torchwood moment, the in-joke that Torchwood is the worst best, kept in sar- best secret in Cardiff, and it's well performed. I listened to it twice before writing this review, and on the second occasion I'd gone out for a walk. I was actually walking around a town at night, which definitely enhanced the listening experience. Torchwood Drive is another great entry into the monthly Torchwood range, which is currently going through an imperial phase where it feels like it can do no wrong. That's it for my reviews. The other big finishes released this month that I've not spoken about are an audiobook of the Bernie Summerfield novel The Tree of Life by Mark Michalowski, which is read by Benny herself and Lisa, Sullen, uh, Lisa Bauman, and volume one of their reimagining of Space 1999. Uh, I'll be back briefly um, after a trailer for that release. From Big Finish Productions, Space 1999, volume one. Abandon hope of returning to Earth. Was I right, Professor? 
was someone watching us for Meta. You're suggesting the moon was deliberately taken out of Earth's orbit. That's a spacecraft. It's small. I almost missed it. Take over! This is Moonbase Alpha. My intentions are peaceful. Simmons, get down! I gave them a secret code. I had to lift off before my eagle was buried in stone ice. I think your people should join us. Imagine that, being able to set our own course for once. Oh, smell that fresh air. It may be brand new to us, but it's probably been here a few million years or so, and we don't know a thing about it. Look out! Stop! What do you think you're... Humanity's dream of immortality. I'm going to take their nuclear core to power this ship into deep space. Stop! Now you see I mean it. Would you look at that? Are we about to have humankind's first contact with aliens? Big finish. We love stories. Sounds great, doesn't it? I wish I could afford it. Maybe one day. Um, they've also done an awesome video trailer for that release, uh, which is available on their youth YouTube channel, which is definitely well worth checking out. So once again, a very strong month for Big Finish. It was difficult to pick my favourite out, but I just about managed. <laughs> it was, of course, the wonderful uh, Gallifrey Time War 4. The whole Time War saga on Gallifrey has been superbly done. And whilst I'm sad that it's come to an end, it told the story it needed to tell, and it did it brilliantly. Like I said before, hats off to all involved. I will be back at the start of April to look at March's releases. But before that, I will also be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully, to review some of Big Finish's retro output. Uh, this will be an occasional series. It will depend on work commitments and things of that nature. But my plan is to start at the very beginning, which, as we all know, is a very good place to start. And all of the releases from 1998 and 99 will be looked at. That's all eight of them. Yes, they did eight releases in two years. Thank you for watching. I will see you next time. Bye-bye. This podcast was originally conceived as a YouTube video, hence occasional references to things you can see on the screen. It was written and performed by Richard A. Boxhall, and all trailers were used with kind permission from Big Finish Productions. If you have any thoughts or feedback, please email me at richard.a.b.writes at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.